welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for October 16th to 22nd. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor John Shook on the life and work of John Dewey. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. October 16th. In 1844, the American Psychiatric Association was founded by 13 physicians at the Jones Hotel in Philadelphia. The organization was first called the Association of Medical Superintendents of American Institutions for the Insane. It became the American Medico-Psychological Association in 1894 and adopted its current name in 1913. Also on October 16th, in 1893, Granville Stanley Hall's article, The Contents of Children's Minds on Entering School, was published in the Princeton Review. This article was based on data from questionnaires given to children and effectively launched the child study movement in the United States. Also on October 16th, in 1962, Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, was published. Kuhn described revolutionary change in science as a social process of paradigm shifts, not a product of the discovery of new facts. For October 17th, in 1938, Loretta Bender's Visual Motor Gestalt Test, commonly called the Bender Gestalt Test, was published. For October 19th, in 1828, the first clear instance of a relationship between epilepsy and a local cortical lesion was published by Richard Bright, a London physician. Bright's conclusion was not generally accepted by the medical community until the research of Hewlings Jackson was published beginning in 1863. Also on October 19th, in 1950, Eric H. Erickson's book, Childhood and Society, was published. Also on October 19th, in 1961, Georg von Bekeschi won the Nobel Prize for his study of the physiology of hearing. He provided evidence for the traveling wave theory of pitch perception. On October 20th, in 1885, Sigmund Freud first met Jean-Martin Charcot during Freud's 20-week visit to Paris. Freud was strongly influenced by Charcot's demonstrations of the relation between hypnotic suggestibility and hysterical symptoms. Also on October 20th, in 1919, the National Research Council Division of Anthropology and Psychology was organized. For October 21st, in 1958, James G. March, Harold Goitzkow, and Herbert A. Simon's book, Organizations, was published. And finally, for October 22nd, in 1957, Charles B. Furster and B.F. Skinner's book, Schedules of Reinforcement, was published.
On October 20, 1859, the famed psychologist, educational theorist, and philosopher John Dewey was born to a modest family in Burlington, Vermont. Dewey is best known among psychologists for being one of the founders of the Functionalist School in Chicago, but this was only a small part of Dewey's contribution to American life. He also revolutionized the school system in ways that are with us to the present day, and he developed one of the most influential strains of America's most significant philosophical system, pragmatism. On the line to talk to us about Dewey's various intellectual achievements is Professor John Shook, provost of the Center for Inquiry in Amherst, New York, and author of the book Dewey's Empirical Theory of Knowledge and Reality, published by Vanderbilt University Press in 2000. Professor Shook, if you would, um, why don't we start with uh, what was John Dewey's background? What sort of people were his parents and his early teachers? Well, John Dewey was born in Burlington, Vermont, and his parents were Archibald Dewey and Lucina Dewey. And Burlington, Vermont was a bustling, growing border town uh, near Canada. So Dewey grew up in uh, uh, sort of, you know, what, what, uh, what was happening to a lot of America immigrants and capitalism and uh, all the sorts of problems associated with a sort of growing economy. The biggest influence on Dewey's life probably was more his mother than his father. His mother was a stern Calvinistic woman who apparently tormented Dewey by continually asking him, are you right with Jesus? And he recalled later that he rejected that Calvinism, and instead turned to a liberal, progressive Christianity that was very universalistic in spirit. Uh, John Dewey remained fairly religious during his uh, young adulthood, but his Christianity would be one in which everybody would eventually have the opportunity to get into heaven, and one that made no discriminations mm -hmm. of race, creed, color, and so forth. So uh, he deliberately moved into what might be called the social gospel progressive wing of Christianity, and from there he gradually lost his belief in the supernatural God and moved into an atheism. But I would uh, make the claim that John Dewey was just about the most religious atheist of his age for reasons that we can explore later on. Okay. And, and what, were the, what were those early teachers like, his undergraduate education, and he was out for a while as well? Mm -hmm. He attended the University of, of Vermont, and there was an extraordinary professor there, a guy named Hap Torrey. And Torrey was dabbling with the latest trends in German thought. And so Dewey learned uh, German and could read Cotton Hegel and gradually became very proficient at an early age in uh, some of the more uh, interesting ideas of Kant and Hegel to balance the British empiricism that he was also learning at the same time. Then he attended graduate school at the brand new John Hopkins University, where he encountered an extraordinary trio of professors there. First and foremost was a guy named George Sylvester Morris, who reinforced the Hegelianism. So John Dewey quickly became a kind of absolute idealist. Uh, of the sort that believed that ultimate reality was mental in nature, God mind encompassed all of reality, and that human beings were part of this uh, divine, ideal world. 
Another important professor there was G.S. Hall, who taught Dewey the latest German psychology in the form of a Wilhelm Wundt. And Wundt had an extraordinary uh, voluntaristic psychology in which the will was very active in the formation of human knowledge. And also Wundt was an advocate of social psychology as opposed to individualistic psychology. And this laid the groundwork for how John Dewey was able to appreciate what William James was doing later on in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. Now, the third famous teacher at John Hopkins was Charles Sanders Peirce. And although Dewey didn't appreciate Peirce too much at the time for Peirce's arcane explorations and philosophy of science and logic, I do think that Peirce began to get Dewey to take science and scientific method exceedingly seriously. And I think there are signs in Dewey's later philosophy that that helped guide Dewey towards the same direction that Peirce was going, namely that uh, knowledge and truth is what scientific inquiry ultimately validates. Mm-hmm. Well, now after uh, graduating, getting his PhD at Johns Hopkins, Dewey goes with Morris to the University of Michigan as an instructor. Um, but not long after, Morris dies unexpectedly, and uh, Dewey was offered the professorship. And I guess it was around this time that he, he first read James's Principles of Psychology, which I guess had just come out. And he met several of those people who would later go on to become part of his Chicago school, like George Herbert Mead and James Roland Angel and James Hayden Tufts. Um, and he also seemed to lose some of his enthusiasm for Hegel during this period. Why do you think that was? Well, as Dewey expressed it, he began to express Hegelian ideas in biological terminology. Many of the ideas remained the same. The functional psychology that he formulated with the help of Mead and Tufts at the University of Michigan uh, flowed into the wonderful um, instrumentalism that he formulated 10 years later at the University of Chicago. Now, the basic idea behind functional psychology is to invert the old stimulus response theory completely around 180 degrees. According to the older empirical notions, the job of nature was to impact the human nervous system with its sensory information, and then the brain's job was to formulate some sort of reaction to it by processing this information and then transmitting instructions for some sort of action to the motor nerves, and then the human being would make some sort of response. According to the functional psychology, dependent again ultimately on Hegelian ideas, instead, human learning results from first the organism acting into nature, causing nature to respond, and then the organism registers that response back upon its own nervous system. So you see it spun the stimulus-response theory completely around. And on this new functional psychology, then, the information that uh, is gained through learning is partly the responsibility of nature, of course, because nature is doing the responding, but it's also partly the responsibility of whatever action the organism initially took to interact with nature to cause the response. So, so in the, other words, the information, the information that's coming back from nature 
is already partially stained with the human element in it. Mm-hmm. But but the organism now becomes much more an actor in its own in its own destiny rather than just a passive recipient of of the information. Quite right. I had mentioned uh, earlier Wundt's voluntaristic psychology. Wundt had this basic idea, and James picked it up from Wundt. And so when John Dewey picked up William James's 1890 Principles of Psychology, it was all very intimately familiar with an incredible amount of rich phenomenological data that James could provide to further support this functional understanding of how human learning occurs. Mm-hmm. Well, then in 1894, Dewey moves to a professorship at the relatively new University of Chicago. And, and indeed, as he was moving to Chicago, he was actually caught in the midst of one of the most contentious labor strikes in American history, the, the Pullman train car boycott. Now, with its extremes of wealth and poverty and its large immigrant population, it, it seems that Chicago offered challenges to Dewey that he probably had not faced before, and he responded by becoming involved in the settle house, settlement house movement with uh, Jane Addams and by developing these new approaches to psychology and to education and to philosophy. Could you tell us a little about those developments and how they all hang together intellectually? Well, sure. Um, it's an interesting question. Why should a... Uh a professional philosophers suddenly get so interested in unions. But actually, the groundwork had already been laid when Dewey became convinced that the only viable psychology was a social psychology. That is to say, human beings are dependent upon, uh, for their mental capacities and abilities upon social networks. We learn how to be minds from older adult minds. So Dewey viewed human beings as thoroughly codependent upon each other for everything that makes us special as human beings. Now, the laissez-faire capitalism of Dewey's day instead relied on older psychologies that viewed individuals as very separate and atomistic. Now, this goes back to Cartesian days, but the basic idea for capitalism was, of course, that each person was supposed to be very autonomous, very independent, very go-it-alone, and laissez-faire capitalism took advantage by turning this into the social theory that, uh, you know, in the economic world, everybody's completely on their own, and so if you end up rich or poor, it's entirely your own fault. The rich deserve to be rich, the poor deserve to, well, die in the gutter if that's what's necessary, and Dewey was appalled by this social Darwinism and instead was interested in socialism. So he exulted in the social atmosphere at Chicago, wrote letters to his wife, who, who was still um, uh, traveling, and, and uh, you know, proclaimed that finally he thinks something great and wonderful is happening in America, and he thoroughly sympathizes with the union movement. And that's the first of many social movements that Dewey would play a very active role in. Mm-hmm. Well, by the early 20th century, uh, Dewey's had a number of disputes with Chicago's president, William Rainey Harper, and that's led him to move to Columbia University in New York City. Um, But by this time, Dewey seems to be focused mainly on his education and his social theory, not so much on the functional psychology that that he helped create. Um, What were some of his ideas about the American approach to life and society and, and how it could be improved? Well, by 1904, you're right, Dewey had made his reputation primarily as a philosophical psychologist. Nowadays, we would call that philosophy of mind. And also in education, 
because many progressives were looking to John Dewey for leadership and trying to reform the old system of reading, writing, arithmetic, and rote memorization, trying to transform it, as Dewey did at his laboratory school in Chicago, into a method where children were active, inquisitive participants in the learning process. So after he had a falling out with Harper over how the administration of the school was going, he really had no idea where to go next. He just knew he didn't want to be at Chicago anymore. And uh, Harvard considered him. Harvard ultimately decided against him uh, for odd reasons uh, that we look back on as ridiculous. But uh, uh, instead, Columbia University invited him to come. Now, Columbia had a teacher's college, and so Dewey was very helpful on that side of things. But actually, when he arrived at Columbia, he was thrown into a philosophy department where far more uh, metaphysical and epistemological issues were uh, engaged in battle. So he was thrown into the midst of realists and idealists, and his pragmatism suddenly became the most important thing about John Dewey. So from about 1905 until about World War One, John Dewey mostly published on, again, these metaphysical and epistemological issues, but always powered by his commitments to functional and social psychology. Mm-hmm. Now, Dewey lived for an extraordinarily long time, uh, 93 years, I think. Um, what was his reaction to the major, major upheavals that characterized his later years, the world wars, the communist revolutions in Europe and China? Did, did these leave him disillusioned about his earlier progressivism? No, I believe that Dewey's progressivism evolved because he never lost his interest in social and political theory. I mentioned that after battling uh, in the realm of metaphysics for, uh, for pragmatism. And he would go on, of course, to write important uh, books uh, on metaphysics and, uh, and pragmatism for the rest of his life. It became much more balanced for John Dewey as he moved to New York City and became involved with some of the greatest social movements of the day, for example. He was an active supporter for women's suffrage. He was a co founder of the NAACP and fought very hard on behalf of uh, African Americans in this country, and civil liberties generally, sparked by his worries about the war, the Great Depression, and then, of course, World War II. So what Dewey did was he tried to formulate a kind of democratic socialism that could provide answers to these convulsions over civil rights and civil liberties that America was going through at the time. He continued to believe that socialism was the best answer to laissez-faire capitalism. And what I mean by that is that Dewey was convinced that the democratic process should be permitted to control the economic process going on in the country. The opposite view, of course, being this laissez-faire view that People should not think about economics, that an educated elite should worry about big business and the uh, industrial complex. Dewey and politics became convinced that democracy was viable and he was viewed as hopelessly optimistic. 
at that time. I mean, if you think about those days in the 1930s and the early 1940s, there were very few viable democracies in the world. In fact, by 1942, the number of functioning democracies dropped to six. Hmm. Uh, Dewey never lost faith. He believed that the only answer to the problems of democracy was more democracy. And what he meant by this was he was in the tradition of Thomas Jefferson and John Stuart Mill saying that if we educate the people enough to care about their country and enough to solve the great problems of this country, it is possible to put a great measure of trust in the ordinary people to, uh, to have political power and exercise political power. In this, Dewey stood virtually alone. Most of the rest of the professional uh, philosophers of his day instead were elitists and turned to various sorts of aristocracies and fascisms and communisms. All right. Well, thank you very much. We've been speaking with Professor John Shook of the Center for Inquiry in Amherst, New York, about the life and work of John Dewey. Uh, Professor Shook is the author of Dewey's Empirical Theory of Knowledge and Reality, published by Vanderbilt University Press in the year 2000. Professor Shook is also the creator of the website Pragmatism Cybrary at pragmatism.org. If you're interested in reading some of John Dewey's works, you can find uh, a few uh, psychologically oriented articles online at the Classics in the History of Psychology website, uh, including his 1896 Psychological Review article, The Reflex Arc Concept in Psychology, which is often said to be the founding document of the Functionalist School of Psychology. You can also find a large number of Dewey's articles at the website called The Mead Project, hosted by the Department of Sociology at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. There is, of course, a huge secondary literature on Dewey's life and work. Um, one biography written by a historian of psychology is Becoming John Dewey, Dilemmas of a Philosopher and Naturalist, written by Thomas C. Dalton and published by University of Indiana Press in 2002. And now it's time for birthdays. For October 16th, in 1927, Martin T. Orne was born. Orne is a psychological scientist and psychotherapist, best known for his studies of hypnosis and demand characteristics in social psychology experiments. For October 17th, in 1869, Robert S. Woodworth was born. Woodworth was one of the first to consider the motivational state of the organism to be a critical intervening variable. He's best known for his textbooks on experimental psychology and was president of the American Psychological Association in 1914. Also on October 17, in 1920, Norman Gutman was born. Gutman's work bridged Skinnerian behaviorism and physiological psychology. For October 18th, in 1897, Isabel Briggs Myers was born. Myers constructed the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which was based on the personality theory of Carl Jung. And also on October 18th, in 1917, Mamie Phipps Clark was born. Clark's studies with her husband Kenneth on doll color preferences in African-American children demonstrated the pervasive effects of racism and were cited in the U.S. Supreme Court decision on Brown versus the Board of Education, which led to desegregation of schools. 
On October 19th, in 1871, Walter B. Cannon was born. Cannon's area of concentration was the physiology of emotion. For October 20th, in 1886, Frederick C. Bartlett was born. Bartlett studied the effects of prior experience on learning and memory. He was the first to hold the title of Professor of Experimental Psychology at Cambridge University and was knighted in 1948. Also on October 20th, in 1887, Carl Dallenbach was born. Dallenbach was a faithful student of Edward B. Titchener, who worked mainly on sensation, perception, memory, and attention. He was also the editor of the American Journal of Psychology for 42 years. And finally, on October 22nd, in 1916, Julian B. Rotter was born. Rotter is best known for developing the internal versus external locus of control personality variable. That's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at yorku.ca. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 